welcome to the Wildlife Health Talks. This is the 11th episode introducing WDA members and their amazing work all over the world. This time we are in sunny Brisbane in Australia. My guest today is Dr. Alison Peel. Ellie is a veterinarian, a wildlife disease ecologist and senior lecturer at Griffith University in Australia. Ellie's research focuses on the dynamics and drivers of infectious diseases and how they can be prevented in ecologically sustainable ways. It was a large range of interesting viruses that brought her to bats. Get ready for 20 minutes on Hendra, Lissa and Co. and flying, in flying foxes. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Ellie. Thanks very much, Kat. Really pleased to be here. Let's start with some WDA-related questions, as we usually do. When did you join the WDA? I think I first joined um, WDAA um, in, and WDA in 2001 when I helped out as a student volunteer on a conference that was held in Sydney that year when um, I was doing a one-year research um, degree at, on gorillas at Taronga Zoo that, at that time and um, during my vet degree. Wow, and gorillas. Well, I might have to throw in a question about that at some point. That is very cool. And you have been a member for a very long time. That's very impressive. Um, what's your favorite WDA related memory? Uh, I think that's that's really hard to choose a single memory. I've got lots of lovely memories um from EWDA conferences during the eight years or so that I lived in the UK. Um Probably my second conference uh, was up in Kakadu um, in 2002 in the Northern Territory. And um, I for that conference, I was sleeping outside in a swag and watching Shooting Stars with a, a dear friend of mine, Anne Martin. Um, and so, yeah, lots of little memories like that and, and more probably that sort of um, intangible feeling, I guess, that you get of kind of feeling of family and connection at, at WDAA conferences in particular, um, sort of being, you know, being part of that, that group. So, yeah, hard to pick one. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds super nice experience in Kakadu. Um, That wasn't compulsory, though, for all members of the conference, was it, to sleep outside? Yeah, (laughs) no, there were were definitely some people camping and I think some people in in cabins and things. But, yes, we we took our swags and it was definitely a highlight. (laughs) That sounds awesome. (laughs) So I said before in the intro that you got fascinated by bats and you're mostly working with flying foxes. How can flying foxes host viruses that are so pathogenic in other species and yet stay alive for most of the time? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. So um, the way I like to think of it is that all all species have their own suite of viruses that they've had a history of co-evolving with. So it gets to a point where the viruses are able to persist within that, you know, that host species without causing too much damage to the host, but still able to, to circulate amongst the population. And so when when they um, when these viruses um, will pass to a new species that haven't co-evolved with them, that species is unprepared for that virus, and it can um, end up causing much more significant disease. Or it may be completely resistant to it if it doesn't have the the right sort of binding, you know, cell binding mechanisms with the with the virus. Um, so that in itself, that sort of um, uh, transmission of a virus from one species to the next, and you know, being highly pathogenic is is um, not particularly notable. Um, what's different about bats is that they're the only mammals that can fly, and so um, as part of that, you know, evolution process that they've they've gone through to fly, that we expect that there's been um, you know huge change, changes to their physiology and to their immune systems to be able to to cope with that and avoid you know things like damage from free radicals and and things like that. So. 
So what sort of, I guess, uh, immunologists and evolutionary biologists think is that um, with some of those um, changes um, associated with evolving to fly, they've developed really unique immune mechanisms and immune pathways to deal with that. And then as a result, the viruses that they have host have had to also adapt in different ways um, to that, that different type of immune system. Um, and it's quite divergent from, um, from other mammalian immune systems. So when we have that process where bat viruses um, spill over into new hosts, they're, they're very different and they have very different mechanisms. And again, those uh, new hosts are, are unprepared for those viruses and they can be highly fatal and highly pathogenic. Well, it's very fortunate for the bats as well. I'm still, I'm just really fascinated about that. I feel like I could ask questions around this topic for hours just because, um, yeah, it seems just so unique among mammals, right? It's very cool. There's there's still a huge amount to be learned about um, bat uh, immune systems. There's lots of fascinating stuff and challenging to study, but thankfully lots of people out there looking into it right now. Do you know about any research being done on the fact or the question if any traits of the flying fox immune system could be used for any sort of treatment in, in other species? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's outside my area of expertise. But yeah, as I mentioned, there are a few groups around the world looking at, um, you know, bat immunology and and looking at how bat cells respond, you know, interact with the viruses to help design vaccines um, and things like that for coronavirus, for example, or, or henipoviruses or paramyxoviruses. So that's, yeah, one component. But ge- just generally, I think any comparative immunological studies that help us understand how the innate immune system works in different species can, I guess, uh, unveil new questions to ask about our own immune system. So, yeah, that's, I think it's, you know, helping in those ways as far as I know, and probably many others that I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) One of your favourite study subjects is Hendra virus. For our non-Australian listeners that might not be fully familiar with Hendra, um, another virus that I find highly fascinating, can you tell us a bit more about it? Um, when was Hendra first discovered and how does it actually spread? Yeah, sure. So, so Hendra virus is a virus that naturally circulates in flying foxes in Australia. Um, it first emerged in 1994. So it was actually the um, the first of the, I guess, newly emerging um, bat viruses that were, you know, many people are, are now aware of. Obviously, um, rabies has been known about for a very long time. Um, and sort of then there was a very long gap, I guess, between um, finding finding bat viruses. And we've had a whole lot discovered in the last gosh, 30, almost 30 years or so since Hendra was discovered. So Hendra is um, named after a suburb of Brisbane, not far from where I live, um, when where it was first discovered um, after it was making uh, horses very sick and, and die very quickly in some horse stables um, next to a racetrack here. Um, and so it late, was later discovered, um, you know, so in the initial outbreak, there were about 20 horses that um, died as a result of uh, Hendra virus infection very rapidly and um, very, you know, serious and quite distressing clinical signs. And then two people working with those horses um, ended up becoming infected as well. And, and one of those people died. So at that point, um, it was, you know, pretty scary times. Um, this um, new pathogen emerging, nobody knew anything about what it was. Um, it was, you know, suddenly, uh, subsequently described as a new species. And some follow-up work over the coming months, like, you know, is fairly topical at the moment in, in trying to find the source of the um, COVID pandemic. Um, in this case here in Australia, there was a lot of um, wide-ranging studies that were done across wildlife species and um, other animal species 
to try and find the the natural reservoir of this virus, and then it was um, found to be hosted by by flying foxes in Australia. Um, so Australia has um, four mainland species of, of flying foxes. It's been the Hendra virus has been detected in all four of them, but there are two of those particular species that we think have, have been mostly responsible for Hendra virus spillovers. Gosh, I could talk about Hendra for hours, so you <laughs> might want to stop me there. <laughs> oh, don't worry, don't worry. I can imagine, and I do find it very cool. Um, has Hendra been detected in flying foxes anywhere else other than Australia? No, not yet. But so so there's a closely related virus called uh, Nipah virus that was first detected in um, Malaysia when it caused large outbreaks in pigs um, and also some um, cases in humans in, gosh, I think that was about 1998. And then um, now it causes, it's recognised as the cause of um, human deaths every year in Bangladesh and, and sometimes India. Um, so that uh, Nipah virus is, is hosted by uh, flying foxes in that region, a different species. But yeah, so we think it's closely related. So, you know, there's been sort of, um, I guess, co-evolution with those particular flying fox uh, species of these two different different but closely related viruses. Now, um, in in the, I guess, the geographical area in between Australia and, and Malaysia, there's um, there haven't been uh, sort of, there's been some surveys um, that have detected uh, Nipah virus also in Thailand, um, and then some serological surveys that have detected cross-reactive antibodies, I guess, to Nipah and Hendra virus in between. So there may well be other um, related viruses in that area, but we don't know ex exactly whether Hendra virus spreads up into, into those areas. How is Hendra actually spread uh, between flying foxes and, um, say, horses, for example? Yeah, so so uh, Hendra is mostly excreted in the urine of infected flying foxes, um, and so presumably, you know, if flying foxes roost in large um, colonial groups, um, large numbers, and they're fairly um, densely concentrated. So presumably, it spreads between flying foxes through, you know, aerosolized uh, urine or direct contact from urine from an infected flying fox from one to the other, and then from flying foxes to horses. That that tends to happen when flying foxes are um, foraging on um, on either their natural diet, which is pollen and, and nectar in native eucalypts, for example, um, that might be on horse properties um, in their paddocks, or sometimes also fruit trees, um, including cultivated fruit trees like uh, mandarins or something like that, that the flying foxes are feeding on when their native fruits are, uh, and flowers are, are not available. Um, so we presume that um, it, it's either direct contact between the urine of the flying fox and the horse or that um, the grass or the food of the horse is contaminated in some way. And you did quite a bit of research into the question, why does it actually differ that flying foxes sometimes shed quite large loads of Hendra virus and at other times very little? What are the drivers of virus excretion? Yeah, so we think there's, there's probably a, a lot of different factors that contribute to this. The Hendra virus spillovers, certainly in, in this part of uh, Australia, are, are quite seasonal. So they tend to occur um, predominantly in wintertime, not exclusively, but but mostly in wintertime, which is our sort of, say, June, July, August. And so we see that the spillovers are mainly occurring at that time. And then also when we look at the um, the amount of virus that's being shed by flying foxes, it's also concentrated around that time. We've actually got some new research that um, that has been uh, presented at a conference, but not yet published. But it also shows that the the actual viral load um, that being excreted uh, from the bats um, 
can be a more effective predictor of uh, a spillover itself rather than the, the prevalence alone. Um, and so we also find that the, the amount of virus being shed by flying foxes is higher in winter and higher in p- particular years. So this comes into effect where we see that the natural environment that these flying foxes are living in um, varies highly from year to year. So that because that's driven by the El Nino Southern Oscillation sort of system because it drives the the food that they're eating and you know the stress that they're feeling in the environment. And we find, again, I can <laughs> I can talk about this in a bit more detail, but uh, yeah, so that sort of drives year to year fluctuations. So we see some years with very large numbers of or much higher rates of hendrovirus uh, excretion and spillover risk than others. I'm not sure if you looked into this yourself or colleagues, but is it usually when when we talk about virus excretion, so I guess um, you were talking about Hendra um, in particular, but is this a general rule for virus loads that are shed or does it actually differ depending on the virus? It's a good question and one that we don't know the clear answer to. So in some collabor- in collaboration with you know, a large group of colleagues, but particularly some from the CSIRO um, down in Geelong here, I uh, used a, a multiplexed um, PCR assay to actually detect up to nine different sort of paramix viruses, related viruses to, to Hendra that were being excreted by these, Hendra, uh, by these flying foxes. And we found that in during the, the sample set that was looked at, it included um, a, a winter in 2011 when there were a very, very large number of hendrovirus spillovers. And we saw a, a high peak in um, all those other viruses at the same time as well. And so we think that um, either there's some sort of uh, interactions happening between the, the viruses themselves in, within that viral community or the um, environmental drivers that drive hendrovirus are likely also driving other infections at the same time. And so that's something that we're still actively working on to to understand better. For everyone who has spent some time on the east coast of Australia, those people will be familiar that um, flying foxes here are luckily a really common sight. I actually, not being a native Australian, I just love them. I find them um, a very delightful sight for sure. But in a way, I find it fascinating how well we are aware that those viruses they can shed are highly pathogenic. But then on the other hand, um, it's if you live in a big city like um, I live in Sydney and um, there are there is a massive colony that flies out at night um, to their to their trees where they feed on. And they're all over the city and people sometimes have um, evening picnics underneath those trees or like stroll around underneath those trees and um Con- like considering that there are really, really few transmissions. So I feel like there's just a bit of a disconnect from when we talk about those viruses, it sounds like, wow, this is just this massive source of highly pathogenic viruses. And then we look at case numbers and it's actually case numbers in say humans or horses, and it's actually really low. How do you explain that? Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really great point. So I guess two of the main um, bat viruses that we um, focus on here in Australia, um, one of them is hendroviruses we've been discussing, and the other is uh, Australian bat lucivirus, which is very um, extremely close, really related to classical rabies virus. And so, um, you know, the I, I think the um, proportion of uh, flying foxes that are infected with um 
Australian backlisted virus or ABLV at any given time is is very low. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly if there is a, a an infected uh, bat with that, um, then it is possible for humans to get infected um, with that. There have been um, three people in Australia that have um, died from rabies essentially as as a result of that. But there's really strong messaging um, in from uh, health departments and from um, wildlife rehabilitator organisations for the general public. Not if you find a bat, um, don't pick it up, don't handle it, because if you get scratched or bitten, then um, then you're gonna, you know, it will be considered a potential exposure for for rabies essentially. Um, so I think there's some general awareness not to to handle, and so any of those viruses um, or potential viruses that re- require that direct contact, I guess that's sort of mitigated through that. In terms of the other viruses that we think are, you know. Um, transmitted through urine or feces yeah absolutely i mean there are many parks in um in suburban areas in in the east coast australia that have flying fox roosts in them that people walk through they walk their dogs through they have a picnic under fig trees exactly and essentially it must be um exceptionally hard to catch these viruses from flying foxes we don't fully understand why um i think largely you know the the excretion is is seasonal. It's often at very low viral loads or probably non-infectious virus as well. Um, and you may require, you know, extremely close contact. And so, yeah, it's, it's very hard to pick it up, um, pick up these viruses directly from bats. And that's why sometimes the, you know, the role of the, um, that bridging host, so in, in this case, horses for uh, Hendra virus that are obviously highly susceptible to pick up the virus in the first place, and when they do pick it up, they amplify the virus to very large loads and make it much easier for um, that to then pass on to humans. Yeah, they're basically a Hendra Petri dish, those horses. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they're, they're a bit sensitive. <laughs> In so many ways. These those flying foxes, they have a lot of pathogenic viruses, but as we as you just said, the actual risk of having a spillover, getting infected by them is very, very low, and you have to be extremely unlucky, even as a sensitive horse. But as we know, with COVID, facts like this can be very difficult to communicate to the general public, right? seems like people just have an issue dealing with um, very low percentages and um, stats, like no one likes stats anyway. So um, how is the current situation in terms of, uh, say, around Brisbane of um, horse owners? Like, is there a lot of awareness or even fear around, um, oh, we don't want to have flying foxes on our property? Um, because they might be deadly to the horses or how how is this kind of social sociological aspect going at the moment interesting i mean i think it's something that waxes and wanes a degree depending on what the you know um situation is is like at the time and the sort of social narratives and and whatever and so there was a period around uh, 2011 for example where there were a very large number of hendrovirus spillovers in in um in a short space of time and that really um was whipped up into a i mean obviously it was um you know a concerning time you know nobody knew how, how many more there were going to be or who where was going to be affected next but I think it was also really whipped up into a frenzy by the the media as well and and I think you know as we've seen from many um other um types of stories you know anything that sort of provokes fear and sort of very clickbaity um you know is easily targeted by the media there is a vaccine available for horse owners to use so Many horse owners uh, protect their horses and themselves using that very effective uh, vaccine. 
there is also the same issue um, as we see with um, in human populations with anti-vaccination um, movements um, that has been targeted also towards the the Hendra virus vaccine. So there are also pockets of area uh, pockets of East, East Coast Australia in particular where um, vaccine has lower uptake because of those anti-vaccination um, campaigns. But but generally, I think um, most most horse owners just you know. Um, uh, live with flying foxes around them. Many, many horse owners don't even notice if the flying foxes are visiting trees on their property because they come at night. The most sort of negative sort of press and antagonism that flying foxes receive is from the roost sites themselves because we're seeing um, uh, ecological and land use changes, which is leading to fragmentation of flying fox roosts. There are more flying fox roosts in, in urban areas and therefore more people that are affected directly by having flying fox roosts, you know, in their backyard or next to their backyard. And and it's understandable. They're large, they're noisy, they can be smelly. And so it's not unusual that um, people might find that un- unpleasant to live with. But unfortunately, that's a byproduct of the way that we're, humans have been uh, changing the environment and where our group has been looking for, I guess, solutions that address both the the challenges of viral spillover from bats and, and also those human wildlife conflict as well. You and your colleagues recently published a new paper where you investigated the ecological drivers for virus spillovers and what factors involved to make them um, happen more likely. And um, yeah, do you want to share a bit about the results you presented there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so we um, worked with Dr. Peggy Eby, who's a flying fox ecologist, and then um, also my collaborators in the US, Rana Plowright and um, Andy Hoig and, and others. But we combined uh, 25 years of data that um, was had been collected by um, Peggy and, and other sort of networks of people on both the flying fox ecology over that long span of time, environmental change, habitat loss, um, the climate and, and things like that. And basically we found that um, the system was um, largely driven by these sort of three to five year climate cycles driven by the El Nino system. And we found that when there was a very um, a strong El Nino um, that sort of in, in one year, that it caused a food shortage for flying foxes in, in the following spring. And so that means that there's a, a period of time where the eucalypts stop flowering and the flying foxes, you know, have nothing to eat. So in response, they they fragment and, and spread across the landscape looking for food um, uh, to, you know, try and find alternative food sources. Now, that that kind of process has happened. Um, it's been documented for over 100 years. And when the eucalypts start flowering again, then the flying foxes congregate back together and return their sort of nomadic movements around. Um, and, and, you know, that's it. Um, but what we found is that more recently that um, with habitat loss, those uh, a number of those flying foxes that are dispersing and moving into new areas as they fragment are actually staying there and not returning to that nomadic behavior again and we think that that's linked to both um well we show that that's linked to both higher rates of uh hendra virus excretion from flying foxes in those roosts and also higher risks of um, hendra virus spillover in the following winter after those those food shortage events so that combination of things that means that we can predict years of high risk of hendra virus spillovers up to two years in advance and it also shows us that um, we saw that when there was a really good flowering event um, in that following year, that the risk of hendrovirus spillover dropped to near, nearly zero. So that gives us a solution, which means that we can plant those particular species of 
of eucalypts that flower in wintertime and that are protective against hendrovirus spillover and try and restore some of those habitats that have been destroyed. So, yeah, so that's something that we're working at the moment as an ecological mechanism to try and prevent spillover, not only of hendrovirus, but probably also some of those um, other viruses that we may not have discovered yet or we may not have observed spilling over. That is very cool. That is so interesting. And um, I guess another example how climate change can drive an increased risk of spillovers. But yeah, that is really cool that you also looked into those um, possibilities to basically mitigate those risks. That's really fascinating. Before we finish up, do you want to um, share one of your, um, you probably have a like a favorite field story when catching flying foxes, sampling them. And I can imagine that could be quite fun and it's not always easy. Like, do you have any favorite memory, favorite experience there? So many, again, it's always <laughs> hard, to, hard to choose one. I mean, most of the uh, field work done for our project in Australia has been done by a fantastic a group of students and research assistants that I have been directing largely from afar from behind my computer. (laughs) So yeah, I didn't go into the field as as much sort of here in Australia as as I did. But I I have some funny stories from my PhD. I did um, work on uh, African fruit bats, straw-coloured fruit bats called Adelon Helvum, and tracking, trying to track down uh, roosts sort of all in many different countries in Africa, which is fantastic and included in Guinea Islands, which is uh, off the west coast of Central Africa and having to take a, a dry shipper, which is a um, sort of a dry ice type sort of shipping container to keep samples preserved nicely for, for viral work. So we had to load that into a into a canoe from one side of the, this tiny volcanic island round to the other, you know, in the open water pretty much, um, then cut it up a, up the hill on our, you know, somebody was kind enough to help us carrying it up on, on his head. By the time we got up, we realised that it actually uh, had failed and um, was no longer cold anymore. So that was all a waste of time. And so then I spent three days uh, catching bats and storing the serum samples that I was collecting in a nearby stream to try and keep them cool. <laughs> um, and we managed to get data out of them, so I'm pretty pretty happy about that. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, in the field, you have to be very inventive, right? <laughs> yeah, yep, absolutely. <laughs> That's oh, the best that's... part of it. Well, thanks so much for being my guest on the show, Ellie. Thanks a lot, Kat. It was great. You know, always plenty to say, but thanks for reining me in. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Wildlife Health Talks. We will be back with a new story in two weeks. Bye for now.